Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Scott Hayden Church to discuss his book, Turntables and Tropes, A Rhetoric of Remix. Thanks for tuning in. Remixing is essential to contemporary culture. We see it in song mashups, political remix videos, memes, and even on streaming television shows like Stranger Things. But remixing isn't an exclusively digital practice, nor is it even a new one. Evidence of remixing appears in the speeches of classical Greek and Roman orators. Turntables and Tropes, a rhetoric of remix by my guest Scott Hayden Church, is the first book to address the remix from a communicative perspective examining its persuasive dimensions by locating its parallels with classical rhetoric. Church identifies, recontextualizes, mashes up, and applies rhetorical tropes to contemporary digital texts and practices. This groundbreaking book presents a new critical vocabulary for scholars and students to use as they analyze remix culture. Building upon scholarship from classical thinkers such as Isocrates, Quintilian, Nagarjuna, and Cicero, as well as contemporary luminaries like Kenneth Burke, Richard Lanham, and Eduardo Navas, Scott Hayden Church shows that an understanding of rhetoric offers innovative ways to make sense of remix culture. Scott Hayden Church teaches courses in media studies, communication theory, and popular culture at Brigham Young University, where he's an associate professor in the School of Communications. He's been awarded the Phyllis Japp Scholar Award from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the Ruth S. Silver Research Fellowship in Mass Media Ethics from Brigham Young University. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Kurt, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book, and I wonder if we could start just by thinking about what I described in the intro as the culture of remix. I think you have a really interesting take on it because you're really broadening the bounds of what one might think of when they think of remixing or remix culture. Can you talk about how you came to this more encompassing vision of remix? For those of us who who are familiar with the term remix, usually we think of it in the context of popular music. And this makes sense because these were the, the early days of remix in the 20th century were people taking samples from popular music. They were playing it on the turntable at, in, in discos and uh, creating these sort of extended mixes uh, for the dance floor. And so those early days of remix, that's mostly the context that we heard the term in is with popular music. But something interesting has been happening over the last 50 years or so, which is remix not only is transitioning away from just exclusively popular music, but it's showing up in television, it's showing up in film, and it's showing up especially in online culture. So that's one of the fundamental arguments that I have in this book, which is Remix is now more present than ever, uh, more ubiquitous than ever before. But on the other hand, one of the important things that I argue is that it's really always been around since the beginning of, of humanity, uh, since the beginning of human existence even before technology and you know electronic media as we understand it today. So so that for me Kurt was one of the ways that I wanted to expand this definition of a remix which was can we look at remix in a discursive context? Can we look at it in a sort of intellectual history context and and see how even from you know classical Greece, classical Rome 
that that kind of was present back then and that it continues to to be part of our culture to the present time. I'm glad that you mentioned the prevalence of technology because I think that thinking about media technologies plays a really important role in understanding remix. And it even applies in the historical circumstance. Like if we think about print culture, if you look really closely at what printing technology was like, say in the 18th century, there was a lot of remixing going on in terms of reprinting pamphlets and printing excerpts and you know doing all of this sort of mashup kinds of printing projects that was facilitated by movable type and the printing press and those sorts of things. Could you say a little bit about how remix appears in the culture, whether it's facilitated by a particular technology or the result of some other kind of process? What do we mean when we're talking about a cultural item that is a remix? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think when you were talking about that, it just made me think back to print technology. And I appreciated you bringing up those examples, you know, from the modern era, from the, the 17th, 18th centuries, you know, we have examples of Thomas Jefferson, for example, he created his own Bible. Yeah, he kind of copied and pasted a version of the Bible together that he liked better than the other Bible, the King James version of the Bible. We have also examples in the 20th century of, uh, of poets and writers like William Burroughs, who would take scissors and, and paper and, and they would cut out words out of books and, and literally tape them back together in a new order. So we had it happening in that context, certainly back then. But it became more prevalent, I think, with, with sound recording technology as that started to advance in the, the middle to, to late 20th century. And today, I mean, it's, it's only gotten easier. Uh, whereas previously, you would have to have maybe expensive equipment to be able to do this sort of thing. Nowadays, there are so many apps and so many locations online that virtually anybody who wants to can, can click and drag and create their own mashups and, and uh, remixes today. In fact, YouTube, so much of uh, you know, the vast majority of the content on YouTube, especially user-generated content, but in, in some cases, even from corporations and you know, entertainment channels, they use re remix as well in putting together their content. So technology is certainly a big part of it. But one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is I wanted to stress that it's not exclusive to technology remix, nor is it exclusive to the 20th century. It's been around really as long as, as humans have been able to, to create and to record their ideas in, in some way or another. You know, I think of that even in terms of, you know, if you think about classical Greek oral history or oral poetry practices, what does the poet do but learn existing stories, commit them to memory in some way, retell them with new additions and changes at any given time so that there's no set text, but rather a kind of set of available themes or available tropes or, you know, things that you heard from other poets to be able to say and speak out a familiar story with a new twist, maybe mixing some of this fable with some of that one. It seems like it applies conceptually pretty broadly. Could you say a little more about your thinking about what the remix might have looked like in ancient cultures or in other kinds of spaces that aren't necessarily driven by, you know, app-based contemporary technology? Yeah, I'd love to. Going back to our discussion about technology earlier, in a contemporary framework, we see remix as being the sort of appropriation of someone else's ideas 
and sort of redeploying or reassembling it with that technology. Of course, that raises questions about intellectual property and legal issues and all that. And that's kind of dominated our discussions about Remix over the last 20 years or so. But as I was doing research for this book, I was stunned to find that in the classical times, there were these very, like Isocrates, for example, in classical Greece, was uh, he had his own school. He taught people their civic responsibilities. He taught them about effective use of rhetoric in their speaking and, and persuasive tactics and whatnot. And what's interesting about Isocrates is, is really core to his pedagogy was the idea that one should imitate someone you admire. And so in other words, if you want to learn to be a really good speaker, then you should observe the best speakers and take their ideas and, and use them yourself. So for Isocrates, imitation was really kind of considered a way of, of honoring or paying homage to someone that you respected and admired. And in turn, it made you better, um, worthy of, of emulation by others. And so there was something interesting about Isocrates in classical Greece, not only teaching these ideas, but he himself, I argue, was a remix artist or a, a proto-remix artist because he actually, he talks about samples in his speeches. He talks that, about them. So he says that I, I'm trying to collect the greatest number of ideas scattered among the thoughts of all the rest and present them in the best form. And so for him, that was, that was his ideal way of speaking. In fact, he actually has one of his books is called Antithesis. And, and in that book, he's essentially sampling and remixing Socrates and his apology, Plato's apology. And so it's interesting to see him use that technique in his writings and in his, in his uh, philosophy is, is what he called it. Uh, but it wasn't just limited to him in classical Greece. You also had these uh, very influential rhetoricians like like Cicero, who uh, would he would use it in uh, in his legal defenses. He used uh, a trope called prosopopoeia in his in his uh, legal defenses, where he would actually assume the voice of someone else, someone who was highly respected or well known, and he would speak using their voice. Um, there's this uh, example as he was talking to uh, someone who was accused of, of certain crimes and he started speaking in the voice of her, if I remember correctly, her grandfather, who was a well-respected Roman citizen and speaking through his words and saying, essentially, you should be ashamed of yourself. And he spoke through the, the words of her brother. Some of these people were deceased, but he was speaking as if he were them. And so, of course, he's using these rhetorical strategies but he's also remixing. What he's doing in classical Rome is essentially what, what contemporary remixers do, where they communicate messages through the voice of other artists, other speakers, other musicians, other filmmakers and whatnot. And so again, you've got that going on. You've got people like Quintilian in, in ancient Rome, who is arguing about a voice again, but specifically how one can, by comparing two voices together, you can actually amplify or diminish the rhetorical power of one of those voices. You can make them more or less persuasive is what he's arguing. So again, that's one of those, those real strategies of remix today is juxtaposition and layering. By putting two voices with each other, you can enhance the credibility of one or diminish its credibility, its persuasive power. Some of these strategies that are very much at the core of contemporary remix practices 
were actually being articulated and explored and I, I don't want to say perfected, but certainly they were being used and, and practiced by these early classical thinkers. Is there a difference? You know, you, you mentioned mostly rhetoricians, right? Cicero, Quintilian, these folks who are really thinking about communication and how it works and what it does and how we know what we know and how we should transmit that to others. Are there examples from ancient culture of the kind of artistic sampling and remixing that we're familiar with thinking of? Yeah, I think that probably the best example that just comes to mind right now for me is the example of of Isocrates and his antithesis, you know, remixing the Apology by Plato. He's doing that not only for its rhetorical potency, but he's also doing it as a form of creativity. What he's doing is he's, from a rhetorical vantage point, he's not relying on invention to create a speech. He's using more on arrangement to create a speech. And so that's one example of it. Um, others that come to mind, I think you hinted at earlier in, in one of your earlier questions, for example, we look at these sort of classic authors like, like Homer, for example. Of course, they had a utility for a remix because they were preserving the stories and the mythologies of cultures and the narratives of cultures. So they had to use remix uh, as a sort of mnemonic device. They had to, to memorize these long, and keep in mind, this was where it was almost exclusively an oral, a culture of orality, that to remember these long stories, they would have to change them into this sort of form of lyrical poetry, these epics, right? And as they would tell them, you might be wondering, well, where does remix come in? We're not just talking about storytelling. But remix was an important part of that because what would happen is as they would pass these stories down through generations, the core details would stay intact of the stories, but it would change. The context of the story would change. The story would be altered or modified depending on who was giving the story, depending on who the audience was. Uh, maybe certain aspects of the story would be omitted and others would be embellished. So in this sort of ancient culture of orality, they were using remix not just storytelling, but also as a sort of creative outlet. It was fascinating to see how, how big a part that played in early Western and Eastern cultures too, might I add. Lewis Hyde in his book, Common as Air, talks about the Quran and he talks about Confucius and, and how uh, you know, Confucius, for example, said a, quoted, uh, he's quoted in the book by is saying, my lessons are not my own. They're, they're the lessons of my fathers that I'm passing down. And so really, across the world, Remix has played a part for thousands of years, you know, in our creative storytelling and, and in our dissemination of knowledge to each other. I wonder if we could pursue that thought a little bit further. You mentioned some of the things that Remix can do, you know, thinking about juxtaposition, setting one thing against another, or kind of preservation of memory, like bringing back previously heard stories so that they're constantly present in the cultural memory or in the, the sort of instance of this artwork where we're thinking again about the goddess Diana or whatever the case might be. What are some of the other functions of remix that you see? And, and maybe we're sticking to contemporary culture here, but or, or just generally speaking, when you think about the remix as a rhetorical move, what are its functions in your analysis? Yeah, there are many functions of remix. The book itself focuses mostly on those rhetorical aspects that we've been discussing, but I do explore another important facet of remix, which is its emotional potential. 
And this we can see, you know, kind of shifting our analysis away from rhetoric and more to aesthetics, for example, we can see just how poignant remix can be. We could return back to Prosopopoeia and Cicero in the courtroom, speaking through the voice of people who have been long deceased. What's interesting about that is that same tactic was used by Nike just about 10 years ago when they created a commercial kind of scolding Tiger Woods for his famous uh, infidelity during that time. And they created a commercial remixing the words of his deceased father and uh, speaking to him in this commercial. And that was interesting. Of course, that had a rhetorical power to it. It was persuasive, but it was also emotional. It was poignant because in some ways it was revivifying or resuscitating the memory of, of his father and making his presence immediate. But it also happens with music, for example. Something that comes to mind is Eduardo Navas. He has a great book called Remix Theory. And in that book, one of his, his arguments is that remix is allegorical. And so remix is able to, in, in some ways, bring back associated, the way, the way I understand uh, his argument, the way I read it, is that remix gives creators an advantage because rather than starting from the ground up, they can actually use remix or samples. Uh, say we're talking about a musician or a band or an artist in, in some way with music. Rather than trying to start from the ground up, they can actually use remix samples that already evoke certain emotions from their audience. So these might be songs that have a certain nostalgic value, or they have a certain cultural value, a sort of aura around it, as, as Walter Benjamin would say, that we can that, that remix artists can take those and they can reassemble them into a new song. And so they have less groundwork they have to do. They are already instantly bringing forth those emotions that the audience associate with those samples. And they're putting it together and, and in some ways they're kind of exploiting that, right? The familiarity of the sample. So certainly Remix has rhetorical functions. It has aesthetic functions. It has strong emotional potential because it draws from, from the power of nostalgia. There's a whole chapter in the book, for example, where I talk about Stranger Things. And Stranger Things is a really interesting case study. You know, for those who aren't familiar, this is a, one of the most popular shows on, on Netflix. And this show is, is basically a love letter to the 1980s. But one reason why it's so powerful is that it really kind of, it's very, it very much draws on the audience's associated emotions with 80s popular culture. It leans into it. It's, it's unashamed, in other words. I remember when I, when I first saw it, long before I had read or heard anything about it, I think I watched it on Netflix the first weekend after it was up at season one. And the first episode, I remember feeling a sort of distance between me and the text because I, I thought I was savvy about it. I thought, oh, I can see what they're doing here. They're you know, using all of these different tropes from the 1980s. And so I, I was kind of in my own glib kind of way. That's how I was interpreting the show. But what's funny is by the episode, second, third episodes, I was completely won over because not only were they drawing from all these nostalgic tropes from the 80s, or I shouldn't say the 80s, I should say Spielberg's 80s or John Carpenter's 80s, you know, these the 80s as we know it from pop culture. They were so effective at taking all of those tropes and putting them together in the show that it just won me over. And clearly it won over many audiences because, you know, it has that strong nostalgic draw to it. 
uh, whether or not you lived through the 80s, even if you just love 80s films and you were quite young today, you can still feel that nostalgia for it. So, so Remix has that function as well, to draw those emotions to the surface more easily, I think, than something that is unfamiliar that has to kind of win you over first. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Scott Hayden Church, author of Turntables and Tropes, a Rhetoric of Remix. You're thinking about the emotions evoked by these products and their use of remix and calling back to sort of nostalgically familiar themes, tropes, references, those kinds of things. It's interesting because it ingratiates the audience to the work of art and it says that there's something here that's familiar to you. I wonder if you might speak a little bit about how it affects the ethos of the artist in question. Like I'm thinking of the kind of rise of the DJ as a cultural figure and the sort of degree to which that involves demonstration of taste, you know, like what, what we have available for you is this ability that I have to find something great in the crates and curate it for you and bring it to the fore. And so that part of, you know, the, the ethos of the remixer is to do with that person's ability to find and curate and, and represent maybe neglected items of culture or things that we forgot about or other kinds of cultural items that, that speak to an audience in a particular way and say, you know, this is for you because I'm one of you and, and this is the culture that we share. I think that's an excellent question. And it, and it was just, as you were saying that, it was making me think of the different sort of varieties of, of creatives who use remix. And of course, the DJ comes to mind, but there are different types of remix artists. There's one common thread that unites all of them that I'll, I'll see if I can circle back to here in just a second. But uh, one of those types of remix artists that you're, that you're talking about, in my opinion, is someone like Girl Talk, for example. Gray Gillis, he is a, uh, a DJ from Pittsburgh, and he has made these, he makes these mashup albums. Now, what I mean by that is none of the music in these albums is uniquely created by him. What I say by that is, you know, he's not performing in, in terms of instrumentation and things like that. But what he's doing is he's taking recordings of other artists and he's putting them together. He very much falls into the camp of imitation is, is a form of, you know, of honoring who he admires. I think you could say with him, not necessarily with everyone that he samples, but when he creates a mashup album, what's important to his aesthetic is that he chooses samples that are very highly recognizable samples that are very popular that everyone instantly knows. And in that way, he, he very much draws from that allegorical potential of remix, that ability to conjure up these emotions and memories that we have of these, you know, of these samples and hearing them put together in new ways creates a sort of surprising and novel experience for the audience. Now that also puts him in, in sort of dangerous waters when we talk about it from a legal perspective. Last I checked, even though that's been his, his career more or less, he's never been sued by one of these artists because he, he says it's because of fair use that he is using them in a creative way. In fact, almost you could say the opposite has happened where you have in one of his songs off his 2010 release, All Day, it's a song that's actually titled This Is The Remix. And in that song, he plays a good 
I'd say a good 30 to 60 second, I'd have to check, but a, a really long sample from the song Possum Kingdom by this, this 90s band Toadies. And what's interesting is when he released this album, and this album was immensely popular when it came out on his website, it's called Illegal Art, his website. What's fascinating is that Toadies did go public, one of those bands that he sampled extensively, but rather going public to, to sue him or to condemn what he did, they actually applauded it and thanked him for sort of reminding, you know, reminding the public about their creative output. Now, of course, not all bands have that same type of response, but, but his music is, he's very much drawing from popular bands. Now, on the other side of this, this sort of DJ figure is uh, someone else you hinted at, the Crate Digger. And the Crate Digger is someone uh, like DJ Shadow, for example, uh, released an excellent remix album called Introducing. In that album, it's also entirely made of different samples, but these are all very, very obscure samples. Very rarely will you listen to one of his releases and find something that you recognize that he's using. But from him, that sort of, that sort of admiration that, that the audience feels is the fact that he's able to find such great samples. It doesn't matter what their origin is. The fact that they're out there and more or less undiscovered speaks to his ability for perception, to see them out there, to see their potential. And in many cases, uh, his ability for clash, for, for putting a sample, and this is something Girl Talk does also, where he takes a sample from one genre and, and one from another, and they should not work together, but nevertheless, they do. There is certainly a talent here. There's a skill level here from the best crate diggers, the best DJs who make these mashups and remixes to be able to see the potential in these, in these samples and to be able to put them together and to make it work. And, and I should know also that Girl Talk's most prolific era was from like 2006 to, to 2010 or so. He's been largely absent in the last decade, although he's working in, you know, in producing artists and whatnot. But in 2022, some of the best remix artists are just, they're just channels on YouTube. They're, they're remix artists who go on YouTube and they create videos where they're making mashups of songs. They're not, in other words, they're not doing formal releases like DJ Shadow or Girl Talk. They're just making videos and they are, they're amazing some of the abilities and skills of these remix artists. So we do see a lot of them online and on YouTube today too. You know, I, you've been talking a lot about the potential legal ramifications of doing this sort of work and, and the idea that, you know, toadies were, were happy that they were sampled, but they could have been really angry. You know, it could have been seen as a violation of copyright or an attempt to capitalize on something that one doesn't have the rights to. And you sometimes see like interesting conversations with, you know, some drummer that you've never heard of who has been sampled 700,000 times in every rap song and never given the credit as the originator of that beat. I wonder if you could think about that question a little more broadly. One thing that I really appreciate about the book is that you sort of eschew the legal conversation, you know, in, in favor of other rhetorical conversations. But I wonder if, if you have any thoughts about you know, dangers of appropriation in the context of remix culture? That's an important question to ask. And it is one that has been discussed at length in the last two decades. 
probably the most famous uh, discussions about that are happening by copyright activist and law professor Lawrence Lessig, who wrote a book called Remix in 2006. And his main argument has, has long been, we need a more robust culture with less draconian copyright laws so we can facilitate this sort of creativity out there without fear of, you know, of litigation, that sort of thing. And he's a real advocate behind the creative commons where artists can post their content there in this space to be used with impunity to create new art. James Boyle, if I recall, has talked about the public domain and its creative potentials. And there are a number of, of authors speaking about it out there. Um, I would recommend to the reader, if they're interested in these questions, to look at Kemper McLeod. He has written an excellent book called Creative License. He also has written a book called Freedom of Expression, if I recall correctly, and where he talks about those legal issues at length. This is one of those real debates in our contemporary culture that has been heating up in just in the last couple of decades. And I don't necessarily have a great answer for that, for your question. I would recommend that whoever is, is interested in creating remixes, that they be aware of these resources that are out there, but that they also be aware of, of potential consequences that can happen without finding the appropriate permission or without being totally aware of, of different clauses like fair use or de minima, which is kind of what's speaking about samples means there's a certain threshold of a, of a sample you can use before it becomes something that is considered copyright infringement. So I chose not to explore that in depth in this book, just because of these conversations that are already circulating. The way that I explored these questions was more, what is their historical antecedent and uh, what has brought on these types of questions? And so I, I draw from Thomas Pettit, who is a professor of literature. He has talked about this idea he calls the Gutenberg parenthesis. And in this sort of schema that he created, he talks about a culture of orality and how back in, in those times, things were created. The storytelling that was happening was a very collective experience. It was a creative outlet. It was collaborative. It was a type of remix because it was being recontextualized. And what happened is, is in the age of, of the Gutenberg printing press and the, the centuries that followed, there became more of this idea of originality, this idea of canon, this idea of authorship, even indeed the idea of the genius, which Elizabeth Eisenstein argues in her book about the printing press. And what's interesting is during this time, that this bracketed era, starting with the beginning of the printing press, there became a new language, a new way of thinking about creativity and a new way of thinking about intellectual, you know, the production of these ideas and works, which essentially evolved into this notion of intellectual property. But there's a sort of disjunction that happened between the printing press era, the modern era, and what he calls the postmodern era or the post-parenthetical era after Gutenberg. Today, this is our current remix culture that we are in. A, we're, we live in a contemporary culture where we are more interested in, and not to say we, I, I hope I'm not being too reductive here. I'm speaking very broadly here, but there's certainly speaking about the, the presence of remix in our culture. There certainly is a mindset where the materials that are out there, the texts that are out there, the films and the videos and the songs that are, that are out there and released 
can be seen as uh, as like raw material to be taken and used and improved and changed, the sort of open source mentality that's part of our culture today. And what Pettit argues is that this current remix culture that we live in now actually has more in common with the ancient culture, the culture of orality, than this more modern Gutenberg printing press culture. And so at core, uh, one of the things that I argue is at the core of this intellectual property debate that you were referring to is different sides that speak different languages. You have one side that's speaking the language of the, the printing press, right? That sort of modern era of language. And you have another side that's speaking this more postmodern language, this idea of, of a remix culture and, and the sort of cultural evolution that comes from you know, taking whatever's out there and using it as building blocks to create something new. Looking at it rhetorically, that's one reason why this debate is so commonplace and so robust and why it continues is because it's representing these long-held beliefs about what ideas should be and how they should be protected and if they should be protected. Um, in fact, there are other scholars out there who call these sides the copy left and the copy right. And so that, that conversation continues to this day. So, so anyone interested in, in studying Remix, whether or not they align with one of those sides or, or the other or neither of them, should definitely be aware that these conversations are going on because that kind of colors any sort of examination of remix in our culture. And that it's always happening under this sort of, in this discursive climate of, of law and ownership and property rights and all of those kinds of things. Yes, absolutely. I wonder if I could push on this just a tiny bit, because I do feel like there's another aspect involved and that's the kind of cultural appropriation aspect where one might be taking things from a culture that one does not belong to and remixing them, pulling them out of their original context, putting them to some purpose that that maybe doesn't fit or may even be at odds with the initial intention. Do you have any thoughts about the danger of cultural appropriation or even like what it means to take this concept that's so intensely related to specific cultures like Black music culture? Um, and say that, well, actually, it's a much broader sort of cultural practice across time. That's a, a very valid caution and concern. And, and it's one that we're seeing now more than, than in the past. In the past, certainly cultural appropriation happened more frequently. And without, I suppose one could say, without the consent or permission of the culture from which it was being appropriated. And that's something that any sort of creative who wants to create, you know, remix needs to be aware of and careful with. And therein is, is one of those guidelines, I think, that can that could be helpful, which is especially if you get into the sort of, you know, identity politics of different races or genders, that this is this is one thing that it's best to ask that permission or or ask uh the originator of that, the culture or the person who, where that culture, where that content is coming from. So one can make sure to be, be as sensitive to cultural difference as possible and, and not, you know, not be in, involved in that practice of cultural appropriation. I wonder if there are other ways that like existing in a remix culture where all of our interactions with culture are creative, you know, I, as a person who uses Twitter, I'm sort of expected to be engaging and creating my own spin on the day's events and participating in whatever the current discourse is and, you know, remixing it into 
memes from the past and all of that kind of urge of the culture to have us creating content. Are there other ways that you think um, you see remix culture as the dominant mode changing how we interact with culture, like changing what it means to be an audience member? I think it does. And, and I appreciate your, your sort of summary about where we've, where we've come from up until this point. I think that that covers it, it very well. I agree. I think that remix, certainly we see it in social media. One could talk about how a remix, you know, happens in Twitter. Uh, one could talk about how it happens in, in TikTok, and it absolutely happens all the time in TikTok. You could, one could say that's a social media platform built off of Remix. Certainly meme culture, we see, you know, meme culture wouldn't exist without Remix culture because uh, these, sort of re- these sort of meme templates that are created by, by users and circulated to others, they depend on Remix. There needs to be an aspect of that meme that's recognizable so the audience knows it's a meme, but then it needs to be adapted or altered just enough to show the novelty of how it's been transformed. And so Remix is huge to our online culture today as well. Ending on kind of a a rhetorical note here, what's interesting to see just how pervasive Remix is, is how it's shifting how we engage with our culture and also how we perceive our culture. So for example, we could say, you know, before Remix, culture or while it was still kind of underground, people would look at at content and they would look at the question of, is it new? Is it original? However, with remix culture, that question doesn't seem to be as germane anymore, where the audience now is more asking not so much about how original is it, but how well does it does it fit together? Now there is a precedent for that question in rhetoric, in the rhetorical canon the elements of, of rhetoric, you've got invention, which is the is an argument original. You have another one called arrangement, which is, or, or dispositio, which is how well do the pieces fit together? And then there's another rhetorical trope, kairos, which is, does it work? Is it done at the appropriate time in the appropriate way? Doesn't matter where the materials are coming from, but how, you know, do they, do they fit? And so to me, looking at it, uh, at Remix Culture today, it's interesting in how it's shifting the types of questions that people seem to ask, not saying the old ones are no longer important, but that there are now new questions that we ask when we, when we look around our culture that we perhaps didn't ask so, uh, so much before. Yeah, that's great. I think, Scott, with that, we're just about out of time. So I want to thank you so much for this excellent tour of thinking about culture from a different way. It's been really exciting to think about what Remix is and how it spans time and the kind of lens that it offers for thinking about what it means to make art and consume it and you know, make, make culture and consume it here where we are all being asked to be remixers in some way or other. So thank you for taking the time out today to talk about your book. Thank you so much, Kurt. It's been a pleasure. Scott Hayden Church's Turntables and Tropes, A Rhetoric of Remix, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can learn more about the book at scotthaydenchurch.com, and Scott is on Twitter at Scott H. Church. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. 
Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.